Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Lynn Falk's uh, One Man Band is a feature documentary that follows painter and musician um, Lynn Falks from the age of 70 to 77 as he struggles to be acknowledged for his achievements during the seven-year period chronicled in the film Falks creates, destroys, and recreates a pair of large-scale three-dimensional paintings, uh, one that cost him his marriage, all while trying to keep a uh, toehold on the art market with commentary from Dennis Hopper and George Erms. Uh, it's revealed how Falks has avoided selling his soul and setting a tone for the next 50 years of uncompromising up-and-down career and in the international art world, who and who is now being discovered late in his life at the age of 77, and no small part due to this wonderful documentary about Lynn, Lynn Falks, and that would be Lynn Falks' one-man band. We are joined today by one of the directors, co-director uh, Tamar uh, Halpern, uh, along with Chris Quilty, are the uh, directors of the film. We're joined by... Tamar, Tamar, welcome to Film School. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Um, uh, and uh, again, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, the uh, uh, Lynn Falk's one-man band. And I I have to tell you, and I think it's, it's sort of addressed in the documentary itself, I was not familiar with uh, with Lynn's work. And I'm pretty well up on music, and, and I'm not so much on art, but I, I feel like I know enough about the art world and was not familiar with his work, and uh, I see now a little bit why I was not. Um, tell me a little bit going back, uh, sort of the beginning of this process, uh, putting together this documentary. What was it that drew you to you and Chris to do a documentary about Lynn in the first place? Well, Lynn is a one of a kind. He's sort of an original LA bad boy in the art world. Um, I think more so than any of the other LA artists because he got himself kicked out of a few institutions that would have um, kept him really famous um, because he speaks his mind and he refuses to follow any trends that the art market sets. He started out in the 60s uh, making these landscape paintings of rocks that museums went crazy for and uh, five major museums bought them and he was the belle of the ball, and he was in Ferris Gallery, and he had a one-man show there, and then he had a big one-man show at the Pasadena Art Museum. So in the 60s, when he was in his 20s, it really looked like he was poised to become an art star uh, unequivocally and probably would have made a great living if he had just stuck with making the same or similar-looking art. Mm. Um, a lot of artists who make it big in the art market often do it by having a recognizable look. It, it really helps with collectors um, to feel that they, they have sort of um, capitalized on that look, on that world that the artist has created. But Lynn felt he was losing his soul, and so he stopped making these sort of beautiful, peaceful, odd landscape paintings and started instead making bloody heads, these portraits with these gouged faces mm. and, you know, blood streaming down and hidden uh, faces of presidents, very political, angry, um, uh, sort of revolutionary. And the critics and collectors just didn't know what to do with it, so they turned their back on him. That was a, one of the first of many times throughout his 50-year career where he did what he felt he needed to do and the results were often um, disastrous, but he would always manage to destroy and then rebuild his career, which was 
mimicked in his artwork. He, we managed to document him from age 70 to 77, finishing two masterpieces, one that took eight years and another one that took um, more than twice as long because yeah. he constantly was destroying and reworking. Yeah, that's, a, that's an amazing part of his story and, and, the, and the story in the film. Uh, but tell me a little bit about how what, how did you know him? Was it uh, you and Chris working together? What was it? What was? How did you get to to the point where he was comfortable enough to allow you into his life to do a documentary? Sure. Yeah. I mean, that is a big question because we went into the inner sanctum of his world. Yeah. Um, two things. One is he was my neighbor. I used to live downtown in the nineties, in the mid nineties, at the brewery uh, before downtown LA experienced its rebirth. Um, you know, there were a few places you could live as an artist for affordably, and uh, there were these communities that sort of took over um, groups of buildings, and the brewery used to be the Paps Blue Ribbon Brewery. It's mm-hmm. a great place to visit. Um, a lot of people live there now. And it, th- back then, it was a very bohemian place, and Lynn had just um, divorced from his second wife and uh, had to sell their house in Topanga, so he landed at the brewery where he still lives today. And so he was my neighbor. We met... Um, um, you know, immediately was charmed by him. He's an incredibly funny, articulate, self-deprecating, angry guy. So he's got everything, all facets covered in terms of sort of being a perfectly flawed, perfect human being. <laughs> and, um, you know, immediately everybody knew him also because he had come with um, some sort of notoriety because he had really broken through into the art world. He was owned by museums, but yet he, according to him, was being erased by the... Um, you know, the art history books, who's slowly being, just being reduced to a sentence or an afterthought, or even in the case of the documentary, The Cool School, which is all about the Ferris Gallery, which Lynn was very much a part of, he was left on the cutting room floor. So I cast him as an actor first in a film I made called Your Name Here. Um, the film I made before that is called Shelf Life, and I had cast another brewery um, artist in it called, his name is Rick Ancrum, and... Um, you know, it just was a, a great place for me to sort of, um, when I wanted to use non-professionals who I felt had something, some, something that they could add to a film, a quirkiness or, um, you know, uniqueness that I might not find in a casting call. I could look around at the brewery at all these amazing artists. So Rick Ankrum was in Shelf Life, and he did great. And so I worked up the courage to ask Lynn if he would be in my next film. And I was very nervous. I didn't know how he'd react. I only knew him, you know, just sort of over coffee or at art openings, you know, as a neighbor. And he said, I, w- I was hoping you would ask me. Oh, really? So, okay. yeah, he was really happy that I asked him. So he, um, this film is called Your Name Here. It's currently available on a website called The Watchbox, and he's hilarious in it. But um, I'm going to try to put it out, I think, on Snag Films um, okay. now that we have a documentary about Lynn. People are like, Can we, how do we see this movie where he was an actor? It's <laughs> hilarious. But um, so from there, my sound guy on all three of my features, um, his name is Chris Quilty. And when Chris met Lynn, he just flipped out. He just had never in his life met anyone like Lynn. And I don't think many people could say they ever have. I mean, he is one of a kind and... Um, and on so many levels, and Chris said, we have to make a documentary about him. So when we finished filming the feature, um, I contacted Chris about a year later and said, you know, did you do anything? Did you ever make a documentary about him? And he said, no. Well, the reason I contacted him a year later to ask him if he wanted to partner up, I have a very good um, family friend named Raphael Rubenstein, who was uh, the senior editor at Art in America. And he was coming out to Los Angeles to give a talk at MOCA, and I said, oh, do you want to visit Lynn Falks? 
And Raphael said, my God, I didn't even know he's still alive. I mean, that's how forgotten Lynn wow. was at the time. Wow. And he said, I would love to. Raphael loves his specialties for forgotten or never known obscure artists. So I brought him in to meet Lynn, and Lynn was very excited to have someone from Art in America come in. And nothing came of it, it seemed, because it's not like Raphael, you know, wrote an article and published it in Art in America, which I think was what Lynn was hoping for. But instead, Raphael read me the riot act after we left. Why aren't you making a documentary about him? You have such a great rapport with him. He trusts you, and you already cast him as an actor. So that's when I picked up the phone and called Chris and said, did you ever shoot anything? Did you go ahead with that idea? And he said no. And I said, well, do you want to partner up? And he said yes. That's to all of us, all of budding filmmakers out there in the world, that's a great story in a, in the sense that it, it just it just happenstance, obviously circumstance, opportunity, all of those things kind of came together. But every once in a while, it does take sort of a slap across the the back of the head to say from somebody to say, "Do this," and that sounds a little mm-hmm. bit like what happened with you here. And I agree, and both of us, yeah, both me. Chris, because he, you know, it had been almost a year. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny, and it was just sitting there. Again, it was just there, and these opportunities are around, uh, especially for if you're in that, in a world where where these kind of people habitate it. it it's, 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 uh, it's a, well, anyway, good. I'm glad, I'm glad all of those uh, circumstances came together for you. And again, for those, um, by the way, we're speaking with uh, Tamar Halpern, uh, she, she along with uh, Christopher Quilty are the co-directors of the documentary Lynn Falks. Uh, Lynn Falks. Am I saying that right? Lynn Falks, uh, One Man Band. It's a documentary coming out today. Uh, that would be uh, May 16th here in Los Angeles. It's playing, opening at the uh, Lemley Music Hall um, and the Pasadena Lemley Playhouse and the North Hollywood uh, Lemley NoHo. And you and Chris and Lynn will all be at Q&As Friday night at the, the Music Hall in Beverly Hills. Saturday tonight. Night, tonight, thank you. Saturday night uh, at the Pasadena Lemley um, Playhouse, uh, and at the, all these are I think seven thirty or seven forty screenings, and that's t- tomorrow night. And then North Hollywood Lemley NoHo, you'll be there Sunday night for the eleven a.m. screening. So right, uh, so not during the night, during the right, day, during the day. Thank uh-huh. you. So uh, so tonight Pasadena which is going to be, I think, a big one because a lot of people live in Pasadena who, um, who've known of Lynn for the last many decades and are really excited that there's been a story Fantastic. Uh, made, a film made about him. And that's the 7.30 screening, and the one in the Beverly Hills Music Hall is the 7.40 screening Saturday. And, oh, and also, yes. Okay, good. Excellent. Well, uh, again, so going back to Lynn uh, and, and his work, um, from the documentary, he's a. I, what did you call him? A perfectly flawed man, or what? Did, how did you phrase? Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know exactly what I said, but yeah, he's a perfect human because he's perfectly flawed yes. in every direction. <laughs> he has a sense of humor about himself. He's very disappointed in life. You know, he's um, extremely talented, and he also is self-deprecating and admits to being a narcissist. It's very hard for him to admit it. But he does admit to it, and our film explores not it's not just a film about a painter or a film about a one man band musician. It's also a film about a human yeah. um, who has loved and lost love because of his dedication to his art. Um, I think we all know people who are married to their career, and Lynn is no exception. And he he really he he pines for his ex wife, and it's a real love story that's heartbreaking because she's remarried now and. 
they're obviously still very close and, and had a 17-year epic love relationship. And the painting that drove them apart is the painting that we... Yeah. Uh, that ends up being the co-stars in the film. It's a self-portrait of Lynn in bed with his ex-wife. It's yeah. called The Awakening, and he couldn't finish it. Um, if you see in the trailer, we sort of say that, you know, the, in the film there are two masterpieces, one that took eight years to finish, one that won't, would never finish. We finished our film before he finished that painting, mm-hmm. which he ended up finally finishing in 2012, and it went to Documenta, the, I guess one of the biggest art fairs, um, in the world and was purchased by none other than uh, Brad Pitt. So, I mean, it had a happy ending, but for us, we chose to end the film in a different place on a more human note where it wasn't as much about career, it was more about happiness and personal joy. Because yeah. we feel like this film, we know for us over the, we started filming nine and a half years ago, okay? So we, we filmed it for about seven years and then sort of took our time editing. And when we found out LA Film Festival was considering it, we really hurried up and finished the film um, and got in there. But, um, you know, we found Lynn to be such an incredible inspiration for us personally because we both work in the industry and it's not easy. I mean, nothing, nothing creative is easy. And so going back, having this side project that fed our souls really kept us sustained, but also having it be about Lynn, someone who really had been ignored and really hadn't gotten his due, gave a, but still continued to make his art regardless, mm-hmm. inspired us to keep going. So he... He was such an important inspiration for us personally. We're, we're excited and surprised by how many other people are relating to it, but we're also, on the other hand, that was sort of what we were hoping because he was such an important um, influence on us personally. And I want to explore this dynamic a little bit uh, because it is, watching the film is at times because you empathize with Lynn so much and, mm-hmm. and uh, is that, that this is sort of frustration about him. Uh, on one hand, it is sort of, he's right when he says the art world, you know, is, it moves on. I mean, there's a certain strata of the art world that is very much a, 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 a follow the leader kind of mentality about art that's hot and art that's not. And he was briefly mm-hmm. in that sort of realm uh, hugely around, briefly, but hugely. I mean, he won the Paris Biennale Best Prize in Painting. I mean, it was big, big. He he had an incredible run in his 20s. And that's so interesting about Cool School, because I actually had Morgan on uh, about that, and you're, I didn't remember, I didn't, well, obviously he wasn't in that, but so... But he was in he was interviewed, but I think Morgan, I understand what Morgan was doing. Morgan was focusing on the conflict between the two men who owned Ferris Gallery, the right. conflict between commerce and art, right. and he let the artist beat play out in his film like a Greek chorus. Yeah, yeah. They sort of all agreed with each other. They all sort of, you know, came along. Well, Lynn isn't part of that Greek chorus, because when Morgan interviewed him, Lynn was like, yeah, I got, I got kicked out of the Ferris Gallery, you know, mm-hmm. and it really messed up my career. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, ever since then, I've been struggling to get back to that point, and I never have. And, you know, it was like really, uh, you know, he and Lynn was kicked out because of inner, you know, other artists not wanting to show with him. So artists who went on to become the famous bad boys uh, that were in the film. So I yeah. understand Morgan just sort of felt like that's a different story. Yeah, you know, yeah. Lynn Fox versus the artist of yeah. Ferris Gallery. I'm doing a story of sort of the two owners right, versus right. each other and how the artists played out. So 
it was it was a choice that Morgan made. I understood it from a narrative place. Uh, you know, I definitely understood it. It was just like, oh, I don't know if I want to have a B story with another layer of no. conflict when I have so much in my A story. Right. Well, and you're, you're, you're great point. Again, I, and I, I want to be fair here. I want to be fair to Lynn. I want to be fair to uh, the people who I imagine have been a little bit frustrated with Lynn. I mean, uh, granted that mm-hmm. his, I mean, how much if it, do you assess some of the inability to achieve a certain level of notoriety with, within the art world? I, is it, how much can, would you assess to Lynn sort of, you know, his, his iconic, iconoclastic sort of attitude about the art world. I'm trying to. Well, I'm trying to. What well, I'm. I'm trying to ask a question. Here. I'm not sure if I'm getting to it correctly. But is is there something? He is a person that does seem to frustrate people around him. Is, is that fair? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean. Oh, I think very fair. He he sort of um, he just sort of makes choices that don't that don't help him. Right. You know, we have a lot of. Ex- we have a lot of examples of that in the film. Like, for example, when he had a before his last band that he had before he became a one man band, the last band he had was the Rubber Band. Yeah. And in it, you see a smaller iteration of the Machine. And we should tell our your listeners, the Machine is this fanciful, yeah. self invented instrument that's huge that Lynn created himself to play. And when you close your eyes and listen, it sounds like five people are yeah. playing. Yeah. And did you? Did we get you tracks? By the way, if you play it, you might be debuting. He, I just got him to release a soundtrack. Oh, you. No, we can I get don't. you it. Yeah, we can get you tracks because I think you would be the first to play it. We're just we're a little late to getting getting the word out just because getting the film finished was so huge. But um, right. Well, let me but, ask yeah. you if, if if you can get that to me, can I include yeah. it in 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 the interview? I'll just I'll drop it in. Is is well at least part of a track? Is that okay? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Right. yeah okay. If you want to do a giveaway of one of the CDs, uh, okay. too, I can arrange for that too. Uh, okay. Or two of them. Great. You know. And and absolutely okay. right. The rubber band. He's he's guest he's the guest band for Johnny Carson. He's going to yeah. Doc Severinsen's away, and he's going to be the guest band for a week, and then he right. Can, and because they had such a great um, performance, yeah. and they were on as musical guests, they they were blown away by them. And instead, Lynn and the lead singer get into an argument, and Lynn quits the band. Yeah. So again, and that and. Those the, things happen all the time no. in music, you know, all the story. You never hear about it. You know, if the Beatles had had more conflict, you might not have ever heard of them either. But, you know, I'm not comparing Lynn to the Beatles, but I'm just saying, yeah. you know, it, it, this is normal, except for when you start to take a more macro look at Lynn's life, you realize that there's just... I mean, even even recently, we I worked really hard with him going through 15 years of music that he's recorded he has a professional recording setup in his music studio with his machine so anytime he plays it whether there are people there or he's alone he hits record it makes these beautiful recordings i went through 15 years of recordings with him to pull these 14 incredible tracks people are saying he sounds like tom waits yes leon redbone yes i mean it's really beautiful his voice is gorgeous you know the sound quality of his machine it's he's a real performer i mean real um jazz and Improvisational player, right. Right. but he understands you know how to write a uh, a real catchy song you know that that makes sense and tugs at your heartstrings or makes you pissed off about politics or war. But um, yeah. you know, I said, hey Lynn, you finished this, we got it in. Let's have a record release party, like on our opening weekend. Let me throw you a party. Let me do all the work yeah. and throw you a party. He says, nah, I don't want a party. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, and again, that's Lynn. Yeah, again, that, that's the straight. Again, one of the strengths of the many strengths of uh, Lynn Falk's uh, one man band is this. What we're talking about right now, you do not shy away from this aspect. It's such an important part of his life. The the paintings he can't finish. And, you're, and I'm agonizing while I'm watching this. Finish it. It's great. What are you doing? I mean, you know, it's kind of your mind mm-hmm. going through your mind. What are you waiting for? And But it's part of his process. And we, my expectations are, well, it has to be finished. No, it doesn't have to be finished. You know, the artist doesn't want to finish it, but we have this sort of built-in expectation. It's, well, I want to, you know, I want to see the finished product. And this is this tension in the film and in his life that is, that really brings this thing uh, another level, uh, you know, in terms of the insight into him and as an artist and the rest of it. It's, that's just one of the strengths of this film. And the fact we're having this conversation about the way he is, is, is another testament to that. So... Our goal in the film was to reveal Lynn the way we sort of discovered him, yeah. which was yeah. to be like, wow, he really accomplished a lot. Yeah. He's had this huge, long career. He came out of the gate so strong. Why is he forgotten? We follow him to New York early in the film, think, and we thought as filmmakers, naively, he would have a great show. It was his first show in 15 years, and yeah. nobody showed up. Yeah. And that's when we knew we had a story, because this great artist who had just finished this incredible 8-foot-by-10-foot masterpiece from the sky to the rocks at your feet, this three-dimensional tableau that relies on real shadows and light, but is only, you know, a half-foot thick from the side, you know, an incredible feat to make something look that deep. Um, And plus a bunch of other paintings that were in the show that were beautiful, and then nobody cared in New York. They just didn't care. That's when we knew we had a real story, and we spent the next seven years trying to find out why. Why was he not getting his due? Why? And everybody had a different answer. You know, we interviewed Dennis Hopper. We interviewed, you know, Paul Schimmel, who at the time was at MoCA. We interviewed former curators of Norton Simon, Michelle Desiel. Um, we went and spoke to art historians like Cecile Whiting down at UC Irvine. I mean, we really did our homework trying to find out who has the answer to why Lynn Falks fell from grace. And no one had the same answer, and no one could speak definitively. Michael Duncan, uh, you know, writer for Art in America, yeah. couldn't say definitively what it was. Everybody said, well, it's a lot of things, plus things that are out of his control, plus Lynn's personality, plus... plus the fact that he can't let go of his paintings, you know, it just all converged. We couldn't find one moment. Yeah. But what we did note, especially with the cool school coming out, was, wow, there's another example of Lynn being slowly erased. Yeah. He's not paranoid. He's He really is being erased, slowly but surely, or yeah. forgotten. Yeah. And erased implies someone is, is a conspiracy. Forgotten implies just the way things go. Yeah. And we couldn't figure out if it was erased or forgotten, if there was any paranoia involved. Dennis Hopper said no paranoia. Paul Schimmel said absolute paranoia. I mean, we just couldn't. And in the end, it didn't really matter what the answer was because he was rediscovered and now has his due. We still use the tagline for the film that he's the most famous artist you never heard of. Yeah. Because once you find out about him... For example, the Hammer Museum put on this incredible retrospective uh, put together by Ali Sabotnik. She's one of the curators there. She's the reason Lynn was put back on the map and finally was able to eclipse his former self in the 60s when he was this young kid just coming out raw and winning awards and getting one-man shows. You know, he had never done that well until Ali Sabotnik came into his life and said, you're incredible. I don't know why no one's noticing you. I'm going to put, first she put him in a group show called Nine Lives at the Hammer. And it was, it was gangbusters. It was, he was the showstopper. There were nine artists. He was the one. Everybody was flipping out because you go into that first room. It was Lynn Fox's work. 
uh, probably about 20, 25 pieces spanning 40 years. Right. It was jaw-dropping. Yeah. And once people saw what that one room looked like, then the hammer knew with Allie's, you know, under Allie's supervision, they had to do a retrospective and fill many rooms with right. all his work. And it was even more jaw-dropping. I mean, people couldn't believe it. Art in America called it the best show of 2013. It went to the new museum in New York. It's now in Germany. You know, everything changed for Lynn because of Allie. And that was an interesting thing we discovered as filmmakers, as storytellers, that every artist needs a champion, yeah. and that champion needs to have some element of power yeah. in order to effectively champion the artist. Yeah. And, of course, it helps if the artist has talent, in which, in this case, Lynn, is, it just is made of talent. You know, we've all seen um, artists who, who are somewhat mediocre but have very powerful champions, you know, catapult right. the same. But I'm talking about when somebody actually is talented, and there are a lot of talented people out there who have not been discovered. Yeah. And... The discovery process is a champion with power, and Alice Abotnik was that person. She was a champion, and she was a curator at a major museum. And so she put him back on the map where he was left, probably at the age of 28. All right. Listen, we, I'm, I'm out of time. I have to, I have to go. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Lynn Falks, uh, the one-man band, the, 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 great, the, best star, the greatest artist you've never heard of. We've been speaking with the director, uh, Tamara Halpern, as well as the co-director, Chris uh, Quilty. Thank you so much for being a part of Film School. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.